This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the One Thing Podcast. Jeff Woods here. I'm really excited today to record and share with you a conversation with a new friend of mine, Annie Hyman Pratt. She is the former CEO of Coffee Bean. And she we got connected through mutual friends. We hopped on the phone just to build a relationship and see how we could support one another. She really had an incredible story. You know, when you think about what it takes to build a business to the scale that Coffee Bean is today, I knew that there had to be a lot of big wins. And leading up to those big wins, there had to be a lot of obstacles, a lot of challenges. And when you're running a business of that size, focus and discipline had to be huge. So we got on the phone to talk about what it was like going from a small little coffee shop, scaling it to something so massive and how her leadership style had to change, how she had to start showing up in the world as a different type of person. And this will relate to you whether you are in business or whether you're just looking to build better relationships in your personal life. This is absolutely applicable. So with that, let's get into my conversation with Annie Hyman Pratt. How did you even get involved with Coffee Bean? Well, so let's see. The coffee bean and tea leaf was my family's business. Mm-hmm. So my parents um, started it in the '60s, and uh, and and grew it along the way. Um, then, at the beginning of the '90s, uh, my dad ran into significant heart issues, um, health issues, and asked me to come back to the business. Otherwise, they were going to need to sell it. I was working at Price Waterhouse at the time in my very early 20s, kind of just out of college. I almost went that route myself. <laughs> yeah. And um, and I planned on coming back to the business, but not so soon. But um, but with the health issue, you know, my parents said it's got to be now or never. So I did. Uh, and I came back at a great time because coffee, the coffee category had been changing at the very end of the 80s. The late 70s and early 80s weren't a great time for coffee. My parents started in specialty coffee, selling pounds. And the drink revolution, beverage revolution, didn't really start until the beginning of the 90s, right when I came on board. Okay, so all I can think of when I think of coffee is a Starbucks on every corner, frappuccinos, all of this. How was it different back then? Uh, yeah. So in the eighties, when I was in high school and working in the stores, um, in a, in a, on a typical day, we'd sell $2,000 worth of coffee beans for people to take home and make at home. Um, and we had beverages at the bar, but we sold like a hundred dollars a day in beverages. Which in today's terms is like 20 drinks. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. In fact, we had bar stools around the bar and people would come and they could hang out for hours because the bar wasn't busy. Interesting. And and what was the thing that led to that shift in from it going from straight bean sales to now what we know it today? Yeah. So there were kind of two big things. The first big thing was the demographic shift. So in the 80s and especially in the later 80s and early 90s, um, Couple things happened. One, there was like kind of huge suburbanization in California, people moving to bedroom communities out of the city. And that means that on their way, they were having to leave earlier to get to work, like drive where they were to get to work. And they wanted to get coffee nearer where they're working, like kind of on their way. So that was a big thing. Um, also, women went back when women went to work kind of en masse, like there were way more. Um, 
households where both people were working. So that means, you know, mom wasn't at home in the morning to make coffee for everybody. <gasps> so yeah. And then, and then the other thing that was um, so helpful for us is really Starbucks, even though they started long after my parents started Coffee Bean, um, they really educated people about espresso drinks. They really changed coffee from just being a cup of drip coffee to, ooh, you could have this really fancy Italian luxury that you can afford. And they did a great job educating the market, and we were able to benefit huge from that. So kind of those two big things. Very cool. Very cool. So you step in originally as general manager, right? Yeah. What was the biggest challenge you were wrestling with at the time? Oh, yeah. The shift. (laughs) Having stores change from selling beans to selling drinks. That um, it required just a huge redesign of almost all the stores. So, uh, oh gosh, uh, we didn't have that many stores when I started. We had seven. Um, so it wasn't like having 50 that we had to switch, but it still was significant. We had to redo all the coffee bars. We had to um, retrain our staff. We had to really kind of get with a new way of selling drinks. Now, I've never looked at a budget for a coffee shop, but when I'm hearing all of that, numbers just immediately start going through my head that's going, that's a lot. Was there any doubt or question in your mind whether or not this was the right move? No, there wasn't because the momentum on those beverages was huge. Okay. And we were having long lines of people who wanted drinks. What do you mean? Meaning that, especially while we were making the switch in the early days, people had had actually pretty good patience for getting an espresso drink. They were willing to wait, you know, 7, 10, 15 minutes. Because there, first of all, there weren't that many places you could get a good coffee beverage. Right. And that was really validation of, oh, this shift has happened. Mm. You know, it's not, it's not something that we're waiting on anymore. And and we certainly were making beverages, so we weren't starting from ground zero, but we needed a whole redesign for getting people through faster. So fast forward, you're now CEO of the organization. At what point did coffee bean really start to take off? and get the dominance that we know it today? Couple things. It started to take off, I mean, right away. When we, so when this beverage revolution hit, we were there, we were ready. In fact, you could say we were, you know, 15 years too early. Mm. <laughs> but here we were, so we could really take advantage of it. At what point did you go from, you know, seven stores to actually just taking off like where coffee means everywhere? It's a major brand. Yeah. Well, with that validation of the beverages working, the stores became um, economically really feasible, right? We could build a store and pay it back pretty quick. And uh, and the demand was just growing bigger and bigger. And since we already had a fit foothold in the LA market, we went with it. The second thing that was super important for our dominance, because I, I think that was also part of the question, was um, we became known for inventing the cold coffee category even. Those ice blended mochas, Starbucks calls the frappuccino, the cold blended drinks, that was invented at Coffee Bean. Oh, snap. Yeah, we invented that. We were the first ones. Um, and the best. We had the best ones. Mm. Um, and so that inventing it in California, which is, you know, perfect place to have cold coffee. In fact, you had to, to be successful. 
And, uh, and we certainly had a lot of kind of, you know, Hollywood people following us and loving those beverages and all those things came together really well. We got known for having the best drinks. Mm. So I, I know what it feels like to start a business. I've been doing it for the last year with Gary and Jay, really trying to turn the one thing into a much bigger opportunity. I also know from sur- surrounding myself with people like you that once you really start to scale, you're not getting rid of your problems. You're just in. You're just replacing them with much bigger problems. Absolutely. What were some of the biggest challenges that when you guys really had your momentum, you're scaling, all of a sudden you look up and go, uh-oh, we got a problem here. Yeah. Oh my gosh, there were many, but I'll say that I was probably, my leadership and management capability was probably the biggest problem. So let's talk about that because the people who listen to this show, a lot of them are business leaders and not many of them have gotten to where you are. So let's talk about that. So um, I had never done anything like what I was doing before, right? Mm -hmm. We're growing fast. Uh, At one point, we were adding a store a month. So it's, you know, we were growing fast. We were doing all kinds of things that we hadn't done before with a lot more volume in the stores, with redesigning the stores. I, in my early 20s, I mean, I don't know if, you know, how many people remember. I'm not, maybe some people will be in their early 20s, but I'll tell you, when you're not in your early 20s anymore, you look back and you go, oh my God, I knew, I knew <laughs> much at all. So I, we learned a lot the super hard way. And I would say that my own leadership development was probably the hardest of all because I became the limiter. I became the bottleneck. Everything that wasn't working about how I managed or, um, or the way I interacted with people had an enormous effect, like it rolled through. And I was kind of, you know, ignorant of that, blissfully ignorant for a while, and that I didn't worry about it. But then everything came to a head. And suddenly it's like, oh, no, it got put right in my face of like, uh oh, this is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when I talk to a lot of the people who follow the podcast or who follow us on social media, I'll I'll interact with them directly and say, what's your biggest challenge? And oftentimes succeeding through others does come up. And the number one thing that people keep saying is, I just don't trust that somebody else is going to be able to do it as well as I can do it. Yeah. So that was my default mode for a long time, right? I am a... um, a recovered micromanager or reformed micromanager. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> you know, and even though I lacked experience, uh, I didn't lack conviction. And I had a lot of things that went well. I had ideas um, that went well. I had done a bunch of um, new uh, drink development that went super well. I had a really good feel for where to put stores. That went really well. I had a good understanding of the brand and that went well. And, um, but all of that... Um, my gosh, it just wasn't enough. And I started to micromanage in a way that shut my people down, that had them um, first stop expressing to me what were the real problems in the organization. Mm. And when they stopped doing that, they stopped taking greater levels of responsibility. They took less. Everything became, what does Annie want? Because that's the thing we got to do. Because if we do the thing that we want to do, Annie's going to, you know, criticize it or um, get upset. And so we're not doing that. We'll just wait for instruction from Annie because that's what she wants. Why would we do something that we're just going to have to redo again 
Instead, we can just wait for Annie to tell us. Mm. So, man, talk about deleveraging your whole team, right? If everybody's waiting on you to really do stuff, I mean, of course, they'll do the basics of their role, but they won't do the things of really busting through problems. Interesting. So how did you recognize that this was a problem and how did you find the solution? So I recognized it was a problem in kind of a harsh way. <laughs> I was talking with my um, uh, my controller one day. She's kind of more like our CFO and uh, the head of finance um, and HR too at the time. And she was telling me about a complaint um, that my regional managers were having, a challenge they were having, and a, and a complaint with me. So my first clue should have been she was telling me about their problem. They weren't. Mm-hmm. They were basically overworked. They were saying, we're growing so fast. You can't have us managing 10 stores that are ongoing and then lump on two new stores we have to open. It's just too much. Okay. So she's telling me about this, okay? And I am thinking about the financial picture and all the resources and everything. And I shut her down pretty quick. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, they're doing fine. Every, you know, we're getting through it. It's working fine. And, um, and I, we don't have the additional resources to put on a bunch of regional managers right now to make their workload a little easier. Like, I'm not doing that, okay? She got super frustrated with me, right? That I, you know, from her angle, I wasn't even listening. And it's true. <laughs> and she um, spun around. And as she was walking out the door, I, she said under her breath, but definitely loud enough that I could hear, you're just a bitch in an ivory tower. And I got a giant shock. I was stunned. If I could have gotten words out, I'm sure I would have fired her on the spot. I spun out about it for days. Like, what should I be doing here? Like, on the one hand, I was furious about what felt like insubordination, right? And, And an insult and all that kind of thing. But at the same time, she was really important on my team. Mm-hmm. Like I relied on her and I had to have my team. I had a, a consultant that I, um, luckily I had a good consultant that I could talk with at the time, helped me talk this through. And the big insight for me was, oh my gosh, I have to completely change how I relate and interact with my whole team. Because this was sort of the, the end of the line of sort of what happened after all of my behavior and all of my interactions with the team got it to this point. So I had to learn how to, oh my God, back way off the criticism, the judgments, the demands, really take time to shift my perspective, understand their perspective, right? Where they're coming from. And they had my best interests in mind. Mm-hmm. They had our whole company's best interests in mind. But if I'm creating a culture or an environment that they can't even speak up to tell me directly, hey, we're swamped. We can't do this. We actually need to have more people, more more support for our stores so they can serve the customers better so we can handle the growth. 
I want to take a quick second to let you guys know about something that we are doing as a way to say thank you for those of you who are subscribing to the show. If you subscribe, whether it's on your computer or whether it's on your phone, if you take a screenshot showing that you subscribed and you email that to contest at the one thing.com, that's with the number one contest at the one thing.com, we'll send you an email to get a free digital copy of our best selling book, The One Thing. The reason we're doing this is because, frankly, when you subscribe, not only do all the future episodes come to your device automatically, but it also helps us organically reach more people. And the whole reason we're doing this is because we want to make an impact. So you can help us by doing that by subscribing today. And should you like what you're hearing, please leave us a review. Social proof is hands down one of the most powerful things that we can have. And so for those of you who have already left a review, thank you so much. I really do read every single one. And if you haven't yet, please consider doing so. Let's get back into my conversation with Annie. So I'm, I'm really curious here because you get to this point, you've had a, a track record of success, which therefore reinforces confidence, ego, call it what you want to call it. You're the, you're the boss, you're the leader. You get this news and you're realizing you have to go and now change habits, which we know changing habits, it ain't easy. That's right. What would you suggest to the people who are listening to this who are going, okay, this really resonates with me because whether it's in business or whether it's in a marriage, a friendship, a mentorship, some type of relationship where things aren't going the way that they want. And if they were to be honest, they realize they have a level of accountability there. Yes. What should they do to start affecting that change? You, you hit on the first thing. The first thing is to recognize they have their main responsibility is taking responsibility to shift mm -hmm. it. It's like, it's really that part of like, I own the biggest part to play in this solution. I don't own the whole thing, meaning it's not all. When I had to change my dynamics with the team, all of our issues weren't only my issues. But the big responsibility I had to take was A, to address my issues and B, to level up here to say, look, I'm going to take responsibility for getting this thing shifted yeah. to the outcome we want. So that recognition was the first most huge thing. And then the second thing is the way I wouldn't have called it this back then, but what I call it now is I got really determined and dedicated to creating a psychologically safe environment for my team. So that means one where they can share the truth at any time with me and with each other and not worry about blame, criticism, judgment. We uh, had a, um, one of our values at the time was openness, right? That you share openly anything you have to share that could benefit somebody else where you have an issue or a problem. And we really worked on making sure that we could demonstrate it in behavior. Mm -hmm. and, um, and for myself, the thing that I really had to get in touch with is um, my own fears, emotions, judgments, criticism. Like the reason I was jumping to all that, right? It was like, oh my God, you guys are doing it wrong. You have to turn around and do it right, right now, the way I say. Mm -hmm. Is I had to work myself on getting, um, you know, getting a grip on that for myself. And I got some outside support for that. Interesting. So that I could, so that I had support in a way that then I could show up well for my team. Yeah. I've heard Gary Keller say several times, um, emphasize the importance of having a coach. And for the people who can't necessarily afford a coach, you know, having that mentor. I mean, 
That's that's why I'm here today is I put very clear intention on upgrading my five when financially I couldn't afford a coach. And that's what, I mean, literally, that is the single reason that I am here today. Yeah. Yeah. It's so important. Yeah. I totally endorse your mission here. Yeah. So I want, I want to shift the conversation because I'm currently struggling with something that was a major pillar for Coffee Bean, which was quality. You know, when when... When, and I've said this a few times on the podcast, one of my first interactions with Gary, he said, look, we invested five years researching and writing the one thing because we wanted the bar for quality to be here. Your job is to now raise the bar, not come in under it, which is like, okay, great. That's, that's, um, those are big shoes to fill. I'm game. I'm, I'm down. But now that I've been doing it for about a year, recognizing what it means to put quality first often means you are sacrificing profit. Yes. You're sacrificing something. Yeah. Lots of times it's profit. How is that relevant for you guys? One of the things, uh, well, first of all, we knew that quality was our key. We were known for having the best beverages. We weren't known for having the fastest service. We also weren't known for having the fanciest stores. Mm. We weren't known for being the hippest. We were known for having the best, best um, coffee and, and beverages. What were some points when you were faced with the challenge and you had to choose quality, but it meant legitimately sacrificing elsewhere? Yeah. So every time we faced a choice, we knew that we needed to protect and we did our quality first. Okay. So that means in something like a store redesign, we were going for quality first. And if that meant that um, we couldn't turn a line quite as fast, then that was a sacrifice in that moment, right? We were going to make the choice to set up the, the um, employees' um, workstations to protect quality, not to have them go fastest. Mm-hmm. It's hyper-relevant for me. There was a product that I created called Millionaire Productivity Habits, and we were about to do the launch, literally had my team ready to go. Probably could have resulted in you know six figures in revenue to the top line. And I went to bed that night feeling off about it. And I remember waking up the next morning and thinking to myself, if every single person who invests in this product, will they feel compelled to invest in us again, the way that they felt when they read the book for the first time. And the answer wasn't even close to a yes. I did not feel confident at all. And I yanked it. And I said, sorry, guys. And I had to sit down with Gary and Jay and say, guys, I'm delaying our road to profitability because I want to make sure that every interaction we have builds trust. And I'm, I'm still, I'm, I completely scratched it. Now I'm redesigning it as we speak, but it's hard. It's really, really hard. It's hard. One of the big sacrifices we made in that kind of same vein is we didn't grow as fast as we could. You know, we really, um, we grew fast for us, but the market was growing, you know, 10 times faster than we were growing at the time. So we could have grown even faster, but that would have meant that we, you know, we wouldn't have had a chance to train people fast enough. We would have, um, there were all kinds of other quality controls that might have gone awry. We worked hard to make sure our suppliers could keep supplying us the high quality ingredients that we needed. You know, all of that has to get taken into account. Mm-hmm. So we were super careful about that. Yeah, and it, 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 it paid off in the end. 
you know, I've, I've always thought of it as kind of having your North Star, just getting really clear on what that one area is and making sure that you're always going toward it. What would, you, what, what would you suggest to somebody who, and again, this doesn't just have to do with business. You know, we have people who are stay-at-home moms who just love the book, love the podcast. And for them, it's about showing up in the world as the best parent. You know, what would you say to them in terms of number one, identifying that North Star and then sticking to it? Yeah. Okay. That's great. For the North Star, I think, you know, you can get in touch with your values. That's one of the area, one of the ways I think values are super useful, mm-hmm. right? It's like, just getting in touch with what's really important for you. What do you stand for in the world, right? What really drives you as far as purpose? One of the ways that helps me think about that is what reputation do I want to have? Mm-hmm. Mm. How do I want people to think of me and my company? What would they say about me and my company? Because that's probably the quickest way for me to gauge what am I really going for? What's underneath that? Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's my advice for the North Star part. Okay. So my advice for the um, the sticking to it part, that's a mm-hmm. um, little more complicated, but I'm going to try to dial it down to um, kind of one big thing. Well, and may, well you go there because you said one thing. <laughs> one big thing. And that is um, self-compassion. So when you get off your North Star, we tend to fall into victimization. We've sort of broken our own code. Mm-hmm. We've, you know, we've we've slouched or something. We have all kinds of ways of berating ourselves for that, criticizing ourselves, saying, "Oh my God, I can't believe I did this other thing instead of my main thing. I can't believe I compromised my main thing." And when we start criticizing ourselves, we send ourselves deeper into victimization. It's like, we can't face it. We make it unsafe for ourselves. Mm. And the fact of the matter is, we're human. We're doing the best we can. And with all the circumstances going on, yeah, sometimes we forget our main thing. Or we get into fear or upset and we do some other thing. Like, or overwhelm. That's for me, right? I'll do the other thing when I'm in complete overwhelm. Mm-hmm. But I, oh my gosh, I am doing the best I can. I'm doing better and better. And I need to have an extreme amount of self compassion for myself so that I can get back to my one thing, back to my main thing. I love it. Without that compassion, I'll spend all my time trying to justify why I did this other thing. And it just sends me deeper into the victim spiral. Mm-hmm. So I want to, before we wrap up, I want to talk about for the people out there who are in that entrepreneurial capacity, they've had some success, yet they're really wanting to grow. They're really wanting to raise the performance of their team. They want to go for that rapid growth. I mean, now that you've been retired from Coffee Bean, I know this is your specialty. This is what you're investing your time in. Is it, What's it called? Your, your rapid business growth intensive? Yeah, that's a, it's a, um, that's a, put on a workshop called the Rapid Business Growth Intensive. And we basically teach the framework, all the main components of how to develop a team that really can grow fast. Um, without <laughs> Grow fast without you losing your one thing, <laughs> without you getting off track of your main thing, and really to um, so that business owners have real partners in their team, meaning they have people who step up and take way more responsibility for getting to those outcomes. What's the biggest mistake people make 
in in finding those people? Oh, in in like hiring good well, team. Well, or do they already have the team members? Are they trying to find the right people, or are they trying to develop the people that they have? Both. So we generally start with you're trying to develop the people you have. So the people that come to my workshop generally have at least a small team. They could be contractors, but they're at least a small team. And they're mm-hmm. intending to either expand their team or maybe they need to shift around their team. Maybe they've got some performers, some poor performers who, who don't have the ability to step up. So what do you find characteristic-wise? Because I'm going through this right now where my one thing is hiring my executive assistant. And I know I'm not just looking for somebody who's in EA today. I need somebody who can grow with the organization and potentially be COO. So when you're looking for that type of talent, what are you looking for? So there's 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 three buckets of what you're looking for. Okay. So um, the first bucket is the main thing, and that you're looking for somebody who doesn't fall into victimization a lot. Mm. Who can who really um, can grow themselves? Who can handle pressure? Who can handle change without going to a place that is all about blame and judgment and criticism and defensiveness? And you know, trying to manage your perceptions instead of you know them changing their performance. And the way you look for that is by asking them about their past behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the best way to quickly assess. So one of the things, um, one of the questions that I might ask in an interview when I want to assess people's level of accountability or responsibility is I'll ask a question like. Tell me about a time you made a mistake and or a mistake was made in the organization and you got blamed pretty hardcore for it. <laughs> Writing it down, baby. Yeah. What was the situation? You know, tell me about the circumstances. Tell me about what you did, how it turned out, what you would do differently next time. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's a, a kind of a behavioral question that will assess their level of responsibility. So that's the first thing you're looking for. Because skill will mean nothing if you have somebody that spends a lot of time in victim mode. Okay. Or in self protection mode. That's another way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Be trying to manage your perceptions instead of me doing my job. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first thing. The second thing that you're really looking for are people that can change their behavior to the um, to the culture, to the norms, can meet your expected behaviors, okay? So for example, in your organization, you probably have a, a strong one about prioritization. You probably have a way to do it. Oh, yeah. So you need to find somebody who can get with that way. If they have a different behavior, they've got to be able to change their behavior to get with yours. Mm-hmm. 100%. Yep. And then the third thing is to really look for skill. Look at least that they that they have the skill that you need right now. Like, do not get an EA that you have to teach the EA skills. Right. And then, then if you can get the skills that you know are going to lead to the next role, make sure, you know, basically, if you can hire sort of one level up and they're temporarily going to take a step back to do EA, EA, EA stuff and you can afford that, I would do that. Awesome. That's super helpful. Well, where can people learn more about you, Annie? Yeah. So they can learn more about me at my website and at the at the web page for the Rapid Business Growth Intensive Workshop. So 
So the first URL is rapidbusinessgrowthintensive.com. And you can also always find me at impactentrepreneur.com. Impactentrepreneur.com. Yeah. I-M-P-A-Q. Ooh. You trademark that? Yes. Yeah, I bet you did. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for the time, Annie. And uh, if there's anything, what can we do to support you right now? Where do you need help most? Oh, gosh, where do I need help most? Um, I need help sort of getting the word out that I, um, you know, that I'm taking all my business experience and I'm helping um, leaders and CEOs um, train and develop their team. I'm doing that for them. And that's, that's what I'm hoping to get the word out on. Awesome. Well, done. Great. Thanks for the time. And I look forward to connecting again soon. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Annie Hyman Pratt. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of ahas throughout this. And, and I want to share a few of them with you right now. Because the reason we do this, consuming content is great. But you'll really have the biggest impact. You'll have the the most growth when you back it with action. So whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a business owner, an employee, or, or a stay-at-home parent, the lessons distilled in this absolutely matter to you. And the biggest thing for me was accountability. You know, when, when a relationship is not going the right way, it's very easy to go to, to go below the line, like a mentor of mine says, which is going to blame, shame, and justification about your stance. It takes a bigger person to, in those situations, not point the finger, not go below the line and to first and foremost look in the mirror and say, how can I improve myself? How can I focus on something that I can actually control? Because you can't control anyone else, but you can absolutely control the way that you show up in that relationship. Annie, for years, really thought it wasn't her. She thought it was everyone else around her. And she didn't have anybody to really check her until her finance slash HR person said what she said about her and, and really shocked her. And that's when Annie realized that she had to first and foremost change. She had to create the environment so that the people around her would feel comfortable to bring the challenges and would feel comfortable putting their, their, their sweat and their tears on the line for the company. For you in your relationships that matter most, whether that be with employees, whether that be with a spouse, whether that be with a mentor, a friend, what can you be doing to show up as the best version of yourself in those relationships moving forward? And the last thing that really stuck with me was just the importance of having great talent around you. I heard Gary Keller say, at any point in your life, if you ever feel like you're hitting a ceiling, it's because you're missing a person whether it's in the form of a coach or a mentor, or whether it's in the form of an employee or a contractor. And Jay Papazian early on asked me, what type of person would I have to become so that top talent would be begging to come work for me and would be willing to take a discount to do it? That really stuck with me. How do I have to show up in the world so that the most talented individuals would want to work with me? The most talented individuals would want to be in a relationship with me. And I think about that every single day. So for you, what type of person do you need to become so that top talent or really quality people, they must be in a relationship with you. So with that, thanks so much for listening to the show. If you have not subscribed yet, please go ahead and click the subscribe button. This will ensure that all future episodes automatically get downloaded to your device. And it also helps us organically reach more people. And as our way of saying thank you, 
Once you click subscribe, please take a screenshot, email it to contest at the one thing.com. We'll send you a link to get a free digital copy of our best selling book, The One Thing. If you haven't left us a review yet, please do so. We really value your feedback. And follow us on social media. I'm on Snapchat and Instagram at The One Thing with the number one. And we're on Facebook at The One Thing Book. And that's all spelled out, the O-N-E Thing Book. So The One Thing on Instagram and Snapchat with the number one. And then The One Thing Book all spelled out on Facebook. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you next week.